1: at your local auto parts store, or visit SeafoamWorks.com
0: to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at FishingBooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome
1: to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today in the show, I'm joined by Dan Ninefingers Johnson to help break down the story of my early October success in Michigan and the lessons we can all learn from this experience. All right, welcome to the Wired Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today, my friends, we've got a good one. I had some success in Michigan. I'm excited to talk about it. I'm excited to share the story and some, some I think, lessons learned and takeaways that can help all of us throughout the rest of the season. Uh, but because this is such a great uh, occasion we had to bring in the OG. We had to bring in the man of all men, Nine Fingers, Dan Johnson. We had to bring back the original Dream Team to have this podcast. So Dan's going to help me
2: tell this story. Dan, thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. I love, I'll tell you what I love. I love this time of year for the bloody arrow pictures that get sent right so all the all the buds you know all your buddies who are are also uh bow hunters all of a sudden you're like i look at my wife i go "Uh uh-oh mark mark arrowed something tonight and uh and then you're just like then it's just like all these questions and then it's like hey i want pics and you know and then the whole the whole flood comes and uh it's awesome to to see friends uh find success and I, i love getting those notifications
1: yeah man it's a great time to vicariously uh live through all your buddies yeah. adventures and and uh, I wish we lived closer together so we could be getting together in person but uh I had some people here locally who uh came and celebrated with me my, what was it saturday night and uh that's just the best like yeah. getting to be with your buddies and help them be either help them on a track job or them help you or have a beer at the end of the night i mean that is uh that's what it's all about. What, what so, is man, I'm the, just, I'm what is the beer
2: that you, that you cracked when you got back to the house? I had a beer. that's called deer camp. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a beer from a brewery up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, upper hand brewing. So, uh, yeah, I just bought the 12 pack earlier that day and, uh, man, I had a very good reason to crack into it that night. Oh, hell so, yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, man. So, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot to cover. Um, uh, I'm gonna be putty in your hands, though. I will let you take the reins as host today, my friend. Gotcha. And uh, and basically, all I want to achieve here, just so you know, is like I want to recap, you know, what happened, the story of, of how I killed a mature buck on opening night in Michigan, and then um, you know what the big takeaways were that I had from it, the lessons I learned, the things that I think you know could help other people. Uh, with their, their season this year. So that's what I want to achieve.
2: How we do that, Dan is up to your crazy ass mind. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to break it all down, right? And this, this is the, this is the part that I love about podcasting is the, the details into the details into the details that, you know, the why behind uh, the story, the data that goes into it, the decision-making and breaking it all down. But I have to ask you one question first. Okay. This has nothing to do really with this hunt. So, but we're going to lighten the mood a little bit. We're going to get everybody, (laughs) we're going to get everybody a little juicy so that they flow into this episode and really absorb it. So I've been talking with, (laughs) I've been talking with Tony Peterson recently. Yes. Okay. You know, you know, Tony and uh, um, he, every once in a while will throw a jab your way about your mustache. And (laughs) it's like a low blow. And I, I say this, I go, hey, Mark's not here to defend himself. So I think it's only proper that you start off this podcast by low-blowing Tony Peterson. (laughs) Well, here's something that nobody knows
1: about Tony. Okay, Is that Tony is a bigger nerd than I am. He tries to play off this whole like cool guy vibe when he does the podcast and he likes to trash me and Spencer and our seashell collecting hobbies or something like that. But every time I see the guy, all he wants to talk about is the latest Star Trek stuff like, whoa, what's going on in the stars? What's going on with uh, Elon Musk? The guy makes you and me look like varsity athletes, Dan. It really is amazing. The job he's done. Yeah, absolutely. The job he's done. Pulling the wool over everybody's eyes here in the podcast is is
2: impressive. So, okay. so he's yes. a nerd is what you're getting at. Big big, big nerd. nerd. Okay, like big time. Like nerd. we should give him Squirrelies type nerd. Like
1: yeah, that's definitely yeah, why okay. he is the way he is now is because of all those that he got in high school. <laughs>
2: I gotcha. All right. Well, now we know a little bit more about Tony Peterson. The inside of what makes him work. He's just a, he's just yes. a big nerd.
1: If you ever um, run into him on the street, ask him for a space fact. Space he, loves, he loves giving space facts, so much so that his wife, who has got to be like a sympathy marriage kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, he is stuck to a quota. He's only allowed to share one space fact a night to his wife because she can't handle any more than that, but he's so excited <laughs> about space. This is no joke. This is literally Dude, this real is, life, Dan. This is awesome. <laughs> this is real life.
2: So there's a little insight into Tony Peterson. Okay, perfect. There we go. Now, we're, now we've just talked trash on someone. And I don't know about you, but every time I talk trash on someone, I feel just a little bit better about myself. So. No, I feel a lot better. I feel a lot better. <laughs> uh, good. Good. Okay. All right. It's, it's no stranger. You've, you've posted the pictures on, on social. Everybody knows you, you killed a deer, but there's a whole story behind it. It's not just, hey, I showed up opening day and, and put an arrow through this buck. It sounds to me like this is a multi-year uh a multi-year type of a trail to get to this point. Now, what I want to know is how far back does this this trail go uh to uh, to lead up to this opening day buck that you shot in Michigan. So, it is
1: it's a two-year story. Two okay. But it is Lightly tied to a three-year story, okay, um, and and kind of how my how my goals and mindset and things have shifted because I'll, I'll kind of jump a little bit ahead of you, Dan, and you tell me if I'm going off base here. But the previous me, in many years, you know this. I yep. I would get stuck on one deer, right? Do you remember yeah. the years of Holyfield yep. and six shooter and all these bucks, and I I chase them for year after year, and it'd be like this buck or bust, right? And so there was a deer that could have been a this buck or bust for me this year, which was a deer I called Junior. He was a buck that, you know, as a three-year-old, three years ago, I passed him when I was chasing that buck, Tran. Mm-hmm. Um, and this buck looked like a like a smaller version of Tran, so I called him like Junior, Tran Junior. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was two, two or three years ago. I saw him a ton, passed him a bunch. And then the next year, which was last year, he was like the number one buck I was after. And I didn't get to hunt Michigan as much last year, but he was the one I wanted. So coming into this year, um, you know, he is a five and a half year old, like stud this year. And he was, he was my number one. Um, but because of what happened last year and what you and I have talked about this year, a couple times, kind of just the, the interesting challenges I had last year and the kind of mental stuff I went through and you know, just, uh, coming into this year, one of the big things I want to get back to just having fun and not stressing over certain things and not, you know, locking myself into crazy goals or crazy things. And so coming into this year, you know, rather than doing what I've done in the past, which is the, it's this buck or bust. I have to kill this one mega giant. I decided I wasn't going to do that this year. I was going to just have fun and take what kind of the hunt gave me. And so because of that, uh, this buck that I ended up shooting ended up being a deer that I set my sights on in addition to uh junior. So gotcha. that's a long winded way of saying why it's sort of tied to this three year story. But as my mind shift, as my mindset shifted this year, um, this buck kind of entered the story yeah. because of that. Okay. So,
2: so he, he first showed up two years ago, okay. last year, sorry. Right. So last year, but it was kind of a, Uh, The mindset change, it sounds like, went from one deer to a specific caliber of deer that that you were trying to accomplish. What was that caliber?
1: Yeah, so my thoughts out here on my local stuff in Michigan was a four-year-old. Okay. Um, And this year is a particularly good year in this general area. Um, in this little neck of the woods that I've been focusing on, there are three bucks that I'm very confident are four or older, which is, which is better than most years. Yeah. Um, and when so you say four
2: year old in Michigan, right, there's a lot of guys out there going, dang, four, f- three, four year olds in one general area. That sounds pretty good.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I feel like it is pretty good. Yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty lucky to have, you know, a handful of properties in this, uh, kind of adjacent area. Uh, that gives me access to a spot where there's three three bucks that are four. But to be clear, these aren't like big bucks in a lot of people's eyes. Uh, right. I mean, they're bucks that I'm stoked about in Michigan. But you know, Junior is, uh, like I said, I'm pretty confident he's a five-and-a-half-year-old. And he's an eight-pointer, and he's probably like a 140-class eight-pointer. Um, and then there was this other buck who, this is the third year I've known about him, and he is now a 10-pointer. I call him the wide nine because he was a nine a wide nine two years ago. Um he's probably like one thirty something as a four year old. And then there was this other buck, a nice nine pointer, uh, who is also four and a half, and he's probably like a hundred and thirty class ish nine pointer. Um, and so I saw all of these three deer last year. Two of them were three year olds, one was a four year old last year, and now this year they all showed back up on camera. Um and that's what I'm talking about. So I've got a couple, yeah. you know, three bucks that are over 130, basically, uh, two four-year-olds, one five-year-old. And, you know, throughout the summer, they, um, summer and September, they were kind of, they, they showed up at different times and have showed up to
2: differing degrees. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about what you feel makes this area you know, like all the farms that this, this general area where these deer are living so special that it holds a higher age class.
1: Yeah. So there's a couple things going for this neck of the woods. Um, you know, there's, there's this main property that I've been hunting for years now that um, I've been very careful with. And so to recap on this farm, it's like a, it's a little over like 85, 86 acres. About half of that is farm field. So there's about, you know, 40-ish acres of cover on it. Uh part of that is a swamp that I just never go into. I mean, almost almost never go into it except for like a time or two in the off season. Um and then there's <clears throat> two neighboring properties that have good cover and that uh, are lightly pressured. So there's one property that does have another couple hunters, but they they're not in there very often. Um so that you know works as like a pseudo sanctuary a little bit and then there's a second property that at least last i heard nobody hunts it it's 80 acres last i've i don't know these people well but i've talked to them a handful of times and they they have not let people hunt there historically um now there's other properties around that that get hunted a ton so basically there's 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 these pieces that I have access to the main place that I hunt. And then I've got a couple neighboring hunt spots in this block that I also have access to that I lightly hunt. And then there's these two pieces that are lightly hunted and then around it, there's tons and tons of pressure. So I kind of think what happens is that there's this little core that's lightly pressured and then everything else around it that just is absolutely hammered. And because of that, you know, I think stuff gets pushed into the lightly hunted area that I focus on. And so it kind of becomes like a, like a sanctuary of sorts because there's so much pressure all around it. That's kind of my theory about what happens and why, you know, over the years I've been able to, you know, have, you know, mature bucks. Usually there's at least, you know, one mature buck. um, And now we're getting to the point, you know, now that we're, you know, I've, I've been hunting this general area for 11 years, I think, you know, the very first year I hunted out there, there was one three-year-old all season. That was the best that was around all season. Yeah, And it's, it's slowly gotten better and better to now, you know, I feel most years there's, there's a four-year-old or two, you know, like of that kind of caliber. Yeah. Rarely are there like big, big bucks, like Iowa, big bucks. Right. But you know, every once in a while, there's a really big one, but I, am usually, you know, I'm super stoked with, uh, uh, any kind of four-year-old buck in Michigan. And right. there seems to be one or two of those around here most years, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm super picky. I'm, you know, in this case, if I shoot one buck on that in this area, I don't shoot any more bucks for the year. So it's, it's a one and done kind of thing. And, um, I do a little bit of habitat work on one of these properties that I have permission to do so. So there's food plots, there's different stuff like that. And I think, uh, those things have slowly helped and improved and, yeah. Uh, you know, we are where we are now.
2: Yeah. All right. So I, I do have to ask you a question. I don't know if you want me to, uh, if you want me to ask it or not. So maybe this is edited out, but um, the one of the last times that we talked in detail about this property that, uh, that I'm assuming you shot this deer on was some of the surrounding properties started getting some additional pressure. Do you feel that this additional pressure on some of the properties, and, and strictly because they found out uh, through maybe your social media or you where you, where this this these locations are at. And so a, another person that knew you moved in, got access to a farm or maybe even purchased a farm or I, I'm not sure what the scenario is there, but they started uh, putting a little pressure uh, on a different uh, farm that you didn't have access to. Has that hurt? Or help in any way? You know, I don't know.
1: I, I don't think it's hurt me yet. Okay. I, guess, I guess I do know. I would say I don't think it's hurt. Okay. Um, because since, you know, since that, I have not seen any difference in the deer activity I historically have seen. Yeah. Um, you know, there have been a couple of the bucks that I've been keeping tabs over the years on that have disappeared. Uh, but I, I haven't heard, you know, of these people killing them. So, you know, every, every year, a couple of the good bucks, them after disappear. Yep. Someone, someone's getting them. Yep. I don't know where, um, but no, I haven't seen like a dramatic change in deer quality or like, you know, nothing's changed too much. It's basically yeah. been the same that it has been for the last five or six years. So I, as I mentioned, you know, I think that tons of hunting pressure around me it, that used to be like something in my mind is like, ah, that sucks. There's all these hunters and you know, these deer are getting, you know, chased all over the place, but I, I've kind of turned that into like a, maybe a positive for me right? because if, if even like in, you know, 40, you know, 40 acres of cover that I have solely to myself, um, if I can at least make sure that's a safe place that ends up being enough because everyone's, you know, mobbing them so heavily everywhere else that, these deer kind of know like there's a couple little safe places and that ends up being the places that I have access to and that I can, you know, be careful with and, and strike when the time's right. Um, and that that's been enough to at least,
2: you know, have opportunities here and there. Right. Right. Uh, so I've been to your house and I've been able to see the landscape surrounding it. Do, do you feel that on that particular property Crop rotation plays any type of role on when the deer are visiting your property?
1: You know, I've wondered that. And, you know, for folks that aren't familiar, this is like, you know, South Michigan, a lot of crops, a lot of ag land. And these, these properties, this region that I'm hunting is a mixture of pretty flat, um, ag and mixed timber, you know, some little swamps and grassy areas, some big mature timber and, fields basically is what we're dealing with here. And I've, I've wondered, I've tried to pair, or I've tried to like see if there's a correlation between corn years and bean years and all that. And I, I can't, I can't find any kind of consistent change that happens with it. Gotcha. Honestly, there's, there's deer here on bean years. There's deer here on corn years. Um, the only thing that really seems to suck is if the beans get taken out early and they disc everything under. So then there's like no food right. and that happened a couple of years ago. But as long as there's something, whether that be waste grain from beans or the corn on the ground or something, as long as there's something, there'll always be bucks rolling through here. Um, how much they hang out or how late they hang out can, you know, a little bit of that depends on just how much food is left after they harvest the beans or corn. but, yeah. but no, basically they're going to be around. I see them every year, no matter what. Um, you know, having those little tiny, you know, nice little hidey hole food plots, I think is a helpful thing. Cause I've always looked at those as like a ice cream stand. Yeah. And so regardless of what's going on in the main farm fields, there's always this little sweet little ice cream truck that deer want to roll through and take a look at for 10 minutes a night. Yeah. And, um, that's a thing that has consistently helped. Um, I'm not saying it makes or breaks my season or hunts, but it's always been a helpful thing.
2: And And this year it ended up being so too. Yeah. All right. So I got, I got a, a question about those food plots, not necessarily from the food side of it, but from the draw, you know, the 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 food plots draw the does, the does draw the bucks uh, come this, you know, come throughout the year. Right. And so my question is, are you able, have Have you seen sign the, the amount of sign and I'm talking rubs and scrapes increase throughout the year's because of this food plot work that you're doing? You know, it's, it's hard
1: to say like what can be directly attributed to these food plots, but, but I think that it has become like, these have been consistently present in these two locations now for about 10 years. yeah. So, like the local deer population just knows like every year there's going to be a half acre of something nice and green in this little hidey hole spot. And there's going to be, you know, just under an acre of something green and tasty up in this place. And every year that's the case now. And every year it's like a safe secluded spot. These deer can swing through and and a eat, but B I do think it has become a concentration of deer activity and so it's like the water cooler, right? It's a place that the bucks roll through and leave that some sign that, hey, I was here and the does are there. And so, and so, yes, I think that probably you know, these are places that are a hub of activity year after year after year. And so deer are leaving their calling cards there. And there are always natural scrapes popping up along the edge of these uh, little food plots. And I also put a fake scrape tree out in each one of these food plots. And a camera on those. And every single year, you know, every big buck I'm looking at and chasing in this general area always ends up cycling through those food plots and hitting those scrapes, you know, whether it's in daylight or after dark. they're they're coming through and checking it. Right. So, so yes, I guess as i as I say this, I do think you know, sign probably has increased around here as these have become like known. Hubs of concentrated deer activity, like if a buck that lives in this you know mile square block wants to know what's going on on this you know part of it, this is one of the best places to get a quick sense of who's here what's happening um so so yes, I think as I as I think through this, I think that's probably true and right you know I think there's something to be said there about the consistency maybe um. You know these aren't like huge food plots, but they're they're small, they're secluded, and there's always something green and tasty there. You know, over the years I've planted a lot of different things. This year it's a mixture of clover and brassicas and a little bit of oats. Um, There's kind of a mix of oats and peas and some different stuff that I planted in these two plots. Um, And so yeah, I think that while it's not the food that these deer depend on, it's that sweet little treat, and uh,
2: they like to check it out. Yeah, for sure.
0: Pay attention here, because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever, and you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. For all things auto, do it yourself, and you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today, or visit us at o'reillyauto.com/meat eater. That's o'reillyauto.com/meat eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver And make sure to use code EATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code Eater.
2: We've already kind of discussed this mindset change that you've had over the past couple of years, right? Where you were, um, I mean, you mentioned that you were, you were trying to go do this this one buck thing that changed to a specific caliber of deer you've described the the caliber of deer but there was also it sounds like some some change like summer work some things that you prepared for for specifically for this upcoming season talk to us about what those things were
1: yeah i mean there's two sets of changes i guess like one like you mentioned like coming into the season um i wanted to just get back to having fun and you know not be so stressed out by all these different kind of outside things right and you and i talked about this i don't know what it was this sometime this august we did a we did a podcast talking through our goals and hopes and hit lists for the year um so coming into this year you know I really had only two main goals. There wasn't any specific buck goals There wasn't, you know, I want to shoot a bunch of mature bucks. It was, I want to have a good shooting year. Like I want to, I want to follow through my shot process and have good confident shots. And I want to just have a fun year and get back to what made me love hunting so much. And so part of that was having time to hunt and enjoy my local Michigan stuff. Again, last year I, I didn't get to do very much of that. Yeah. So coming to this year, you know, I knew I was going to spend more time locally in Michigan and, you know, was going to have loose, fun expectations for it. Um, but I still want to do some work. So there were some things I knew I needed to tweak and maintain to kind of keep the Michigan local stuff looking good. So what that entailed this year was getting those two food plots uh, planted and, and kind of maintained properly, which is kind of a disaster in some ways. Um there's one plot that was like uh, perennial clovers. And I was able to kind of get that up and going again. But the front food plot um, got taken over by weeds while I was gone over the summer. And so I had to have some folks come in and help me. And it was too wet, like two or three different times um, to get equipment in there, to get rid of these weeds. And that was just a whole thing, but you know, it got done. So those food plots are put in. Um, There are a handful of tree stands that I've set over the years that I've kept up year after year because they're kind of an old faithful locations that are are tried and true at least for you know they're gonna work for killing does every year and you know every once in a while that'll be the right spot for a buck so you know this summer when i got home from idaho i went and just checked those tree stands checked the straps checked um the ladders going up to them trimmed everything out just made sure those are all good so i think there's probably five locations like that that i just made sure were good and cleaned up and all that kind of stuff I installed two fake scrape trees in these plots, Uh, I mowed trails, and otherwise, it was going to be a saddle game. So, you know, earlier in the winter and spring, um, you know, I I always go and do a good full run through of everything, walking through everything again, and just trying to look at the properties um, with a new set of eyes. Right, I've hunted this place for 11 years now, so I know this I know this general region pretty well, but I try to go into it thinking, you know, what am, what am I missing? What have I overlooked? Is there anything that's changing? So I did that kind of scouting and then just thought through, you know, is there anything are there any new spots I would want to hunt here with my saddle? And so I prepped a couple places in the summer, uh just going in and and cutting out a path to these trees and clearing a tree and shooting lanes from that tree. So that if I want to go in there with my sticks and saddle, that tree's ready. So there's a couple of spots I did that in. And that was, um, you know, that was the extent of physical work on these properties. And this all happened in August because I was gone yeah. all summer. So in August, I did all that stuff. Um, and then the only other thing from there was was scouting work. So yeah. I do two kinds of, you know, preseason scouting in this area. I do some glassing. So I get out there in the summer and in September, and there's a couple different places that I can get up on hills or get on from a distance and glass and watch some of these open fields or these like brushy spots. Um, and as you know, over the years, historically, there are some places I've been able to see deer and get an idea of what they're doing from a distance and make a move. And then cameras. So I glassed in the summer and all the way through September as many different nights as I could get out and do some watching. And then I had five trail cameras up this year no six cameras up five of them were cell cams one of them was a regular camera um put into some some kind of right now they're set in that like kind of a spot where i thought basically i'm trying to get early october data so september through early october kind of locations which means they were on food sources and scrapes next to those food sources um, or mock scrapes in the food plots um that was the that was the work that I'd done leading into the year out here um that was the the setup I had to get some information leading into the season so once we you know got into September as you know um I like to get all of my preseason work done by September and then stay out until opening day um I had to do a little bit of food plot stuff still in September because of those high water issues I was mentioning. But other than that, I was out of there and um, just was was glassing and letting the camera soak so that I could get some good intel. And then, you know, in the days leading up to the opener, make a decision.
2: Yeah. So what were those trail cameras telling you uh, leading up to, you know, throughout that September time frame leading up to the, the opener?
1: Yeah. So this is where kind of the, the hunt was a big part of the hunt, uh, came together because of my glassing and cameras this year. Um, historically, historically in early October, there's a lot of activity up on the West side of this farm. There's like some really good bedding up there and almost always like if there's a good buck or two in the region, they usually bed over on the West side and this thick, nasty brushy stuff. And then they come out and feed in the crop fields to the far west or in one of these food plots i have um you know this is where Holyfield was a lot this is where that buck frank that i ended up killing a few years ago was hanging out so i kind of know most years like that's usually where my first night or two or three of the season is spent is somewhere on that side that's where i hunted opening night and the first couple nights last year um So that's usually where I count on it. And so this year I'm glassing up in that section, I'm watching, and I'm just not seeing the good bucks up there. Um, Nothing's showing. And um, the opposite though was true in the back of the property. I had a couple cameras in this back region. There's this narrow tiny finger of beans and there's this swamp back there. And then one of those food plots in this Eastern section. And what was unique this year that I think maybe had a little bit to do with this is that it's a bean year and it was a late planting of beans this year. So, so this is yeah maybe a little bit, you know, you mentioned did the crop rotation impact things at all? In most years it doesn't, but this year it kind of did because the beans were planted really late and that led to me still having green, fully leafed out beans on this property all the way till October 1st. Most years they're all dried up, defoliated and you know, they're not a major thing. And that's the case around me. Like most of the other farms around me um, do have fully dried down beans, but this property in particular still has a lot of green beans. And so because of that, all through September, these bucks were feeding out into these bean fields, but they weren't feeding on the West side. They were feeding in this little secluded East section um and so that's where like all my camera activity was that's where the mature bucks were showing up most consistently i had a camera on the food plot and then i had a couple cameras on these in this back corner of beans and that's where i was getting pictures of junior that's where i was getting pictures of um this buck that i ended up calling just referred to him as g this big 9 pointer and that's where the wide nine was showing up a handful of times. Now he he showed up some in the front west, um, in the west section, a couple times. But I I knew as I got into late September, like okay, this is going to be a different year than most. I'm not going to be focusing on the west. I'm going to have to take a stab into the back of the property because that's where that's where it's happening. Um, so I you know leading into the season, I started putting together um, my crazy person files. So uh, I sent some pictures to a couple of my buddies of what I was doing. This was like two nights before opening day. And I was sitting at my computer desk at like 10 o'clock at night. And I had a spreadsheet and I had a word doc open. And in the spreadsheet, I had taken every daylight picture I had of Junior from the last two years and had listed out like the date, the wind, the temperature, all that kind of stuff. And every daylight photo and location of where he was. And then on my word document, I had the notes I had a set of notes and these notes documented, um, not just what junior had been doing, but also what these other bucks, the wide nine had been doing, what, uh, G had been doing both 2022 pictures that I had gotten so far in September, but then also what I had from last year. So I looked at 2021, what happened in the days leading up to opening day. Um, I looked at what happened on opening day. And so I had like some some very interesting information that showed me where these bucks were. And there were two locations that these bucks had showed up on last year on opening day. And then there was also like the recent intelligence I had been getting from these cameras leading up in the two weeks leading up to opening day in 2022. So... All of that information, I'm looking at all these pictures. I'm looking at this historical data. I'm looking at the observations that I have not been having in 2022. And I'm looking at the observations I made from glassing last year. And I'm trying to look at, okay, what's like my year over year pattern look like? And what's like the recent stuff that's happening right now telling me? And what it told me, Dan, was one of two things. Basically, my number one location seemed to be this little low spot in this bean field, basically this bean field next down into like a f- tiny, tiny little finger. That's about 70 yards wide and there's a low spot in it. And historically I've always ran a camera on a scrape right there in this low spot. And it's always a place that like deer always pass through. I always get good bucks passing through there. It's very secluded. It's way in the back of this property. The problem has always been that I've never been able to figure out a good way to hunt it. Because there's, it's just scraggly, nasty brush. There's no good trees. And so I can't get in a tree stand or a saddle there. And so I've, I've kind of like dabbled around it, but never hunted right there. So this year I said, well, that's where these bucks are coming through the most often, it seems like. The second best location would be my back food plot. A couple times over the last like, 10, 12 days leading into opening day, some of these bucks have been showing up there, passing through that plot, and heading to the beans. So... Leading into opening day, I had looked at all these things and I said, okay, my number one place that I really think I need to be is in that low spot in the pinch and I'm going to do something different this year. I came into the year saying, you know what, I've hunted that front food plot, I've hunted that front western area a lot in the past and you know, most seasons I don't kill one up there. Um, early on when I first started hunting this property back in like 2011, 2012, I did hunt the back food plot quite a bit. Cause I thought that would be deadly. Um, and never killed a buck there on opening night or those first couple days. So I said, you know what, this year I'm going to change it up. You know, it ha- if it hasn't worked in the past, why keep doing the same thing over and over again? Let's do something different. Let's figure out some way to hunt that little low spot. And that's going to mean you're gonna have to hunt the ground. So I decided I was going to pull out a ghillie suit and i was going to sneak in there and i was going to carve out a little opening in this thick brushy fencer row and i was going to lay on the ground in my ghillie suit and try to kill one of these bucks that had been passing this low place from the ground so So that was my game plan going into opening day
2: so there's was was there a lack of tree options back there
1: Yeah. There's just, there's no trees you can get into. It's just like, it's like buckthorn and multiflora rose. It's like, it's a brushy fence row. Um, And there are a few, um, there are a few trees you could hunt, but they wouldn't put you in the right place. You'd have to be like 50, 60 yards down on either side.
2: Right. So I can, I can remember when you were hunting for Frank, right? The op, like just his movement you had identified and then you thought to, uh, you know, hey, the best thing to do at this point is is get in a ground blind, get the ground blind up, get it, you know, in this area, and sure enough, you shot him out of you shot him out of the ground blind, right? Just to be clear, Frank.
1: Yeah, I shot Frank out of a Frank out of a ground blind, a different yes. different. This he was that that was like the west side of the property, but yes.
2: I'm I'm just talking about the deer strategy portion of it, right? Like you've identified some, the movement and you, you adjusted based off of what this deer, you know, what these deer were doing. So no, no tree options, uh, in this little low spot kind of taking a step back though, were you getting all of these, uh, what you would consider shooters on the same trail camera in this low spot? So
1: they were. It kind of shifted throughout the month of September, so I was getting pictures of my number one, actually several of the bucks, but definitely Junior a lot. Um, in a in an area that was coming out to these beans, but in a basically from the south part of this property, there's a swamp, and he kept popping out of this swamp, and I would get these pictures in this this kind of um, southwestern corner, and so in like late August and early September. He starts showing up here a lot. I'm thinking, man, I'm going to have to go hunt that part of the spot you or that part of this property. And then as the month progressed, I got less and less activity there and more and more activity farther to the north but still in the back. So the, the the most pictures that I was getting were in this low spot and on the back food plot with a few other of these swamp pictures still popping up here and there. But but my best camera data was telling me this low spot or the back food plot, which told me that these bucks were betting in one of three locations. Basically for, yeah. for that to be where they're heading out into the evening, they're either betting sometimes in the Southern swamp. They could be bedded in the far Eastern backside of this property. That kind of is like a high ridge along the back of the swamp. And then there's some grassy stuff on a neighbor's or these bucks could be bedded in the Northern location where, you know, historically has been the best bedding, and basically this low spot and the food plot are like the central food that those three bedding areas surround. And, you know, those are the options and going into the hunt, I have to, I am basically trying to make a best guess on where are these deer bedded tonight and what direction they are going to come to the food. Like I felt very confident they were coming to these two food sources. You know, they would come to some part of that. They're going to either pop into the finger of beans from the south or they're going to pop into the finger of the beans from the east or they're going to pop into the food plot from the north and transition into the beans. But based on you know a month's worth of trial camera information, um, they were doing that on a fairly regular basis. And historically, like last year, um, they were coming through the same area. I had the wide nine and I had junior hit my Northern food plot on October 1st and then transition into the corn in the low spot. So, so I knew this was a thing like they've been doing year after year. They're doing it again this year. I just don't know what they're going to do on this particular
2: night. Yeah. So why, so why a ghillie suit and not a ground blind? Well, basically I didn't want
1: to pop up some big new obtrusive thing uh, that would make, you know, that'd be noticed by deer. The biggest thing right. would be getting past the dose. Like this is a high deer density area. And so the biggest challenge most of the time is just not getting does to booger out for one reason or another, whether that okay. be seeing you in a blind or winding you. Right. Um, so that was why the ghillie suit seemed like the, the way to to do this kind of impromptu ground hunt. Yeah. I could get in the grass and brush. I could get low. I could conceal myself as best as possible and, you know, last year I did a lot of ground hunting in all these different states, I hunted all these different places. So I have become become more confident in, you know, my ability to be able to pull off that kind of
2: hunt. Yeah. So the, and the reason I'm asking this line of questioning is because I wanted to kind of identify the time frame. You got this data, you made this decision and you instantly reacted to it, right? It's not like you, you had this idea in early September or this summer what these deer were doing, right? You set the trail cameras up, then you got the data, then you decided to, to make the move in there, and you felt it was too late to put a ground blind in there because they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, uh, get used to it in time. Exactly. Exactly. OK, exactly. All right. Cool. Cool. All right. So, um, you you know, you have this you have this idea in, in your head. What kind of conditions do, did you feel that you needed to get in there and make this happen?
1: So this is where things get a little bit interesting, Dan, because okay. I I need a, a you know, I love good weather. Like I would love a cold front. I would love cool temperatures. I love like all these different little things that line up to typically good activity. But I I don't, I don't, um, when it comes to the first couple nights of the season in Michigan, I don't care what the weather is. I'm going to hunt and take a stab no matter what. Cause I just year in and year out almost always have a good opportunity. The first day or two of the year, regardless of weather, because these deer just, they're it's just this little window before they really get hammered by everybody else that they're still being slightly dumb. They're still doing their daylight stuff just a little bit. So, you know, regardless of whether I'm going, I just need the right wind to hunt the right spot. That was the big right. thing. So right. in this case, opening day weather looked pretty good. It was like right around average high temperatures, a couple degrees below average, no big cold front or anything, but, but solid weather, not crazy hot and high pressure, which High barometric pressure, which some people, I, I don't know if I believe it or not, but I I, I I, don't mind high barometric pressure days. They seem to be pretty yeah. good days usually. So like all those things lined up. Um, if you're a moon guy, which I'm not necessarily a moon guy either, but I you know, I kind of just keep tabs just because I'm curious. It was a red moon evening. So people that believe in the red moon would tell you that's a really good time to be hunting. Um, so those things all looked like, hey, this could be it's certainly not bad weather. Yeah. Um, the trick would be the wind. Would I have a wind direction that would let me hunt the place that seemed to be the best place? And I felt pretty excited when I looked at the extended forecast leading into opening day because I was actually getting easterly winds. And easterly winds don't happen very often ever, but they are really good for this farm. Because most of the bedding is always happening to the east on this particular re- in this particular region. Um, so whenever I get those east winds, I can be way more aggressive than I usually am, actually. Because I can get to places I usually can't. So we're supposed to have a predicted northeast wind for opening night. And I think, okay, this low spot for me to get to this place I want to hunt in the ground, northeast wind actually would work just about perfect. Because it would be just off wind it'd be blowing just down and across from where this swamp is that junior's been coming out of a lot and then it'd be blowing away from the northern bedding where g might be bedded or where the wide nine might be bedded so basically it's going to be in a position where if junior's in that swamp like he had been quite a bit this summer in september He's going to have the wind kind of in his favor, right? It's going to be the situation where he'll think he could come out into the beans and have a good sense of what's going on. But my wind is blowing just off and down the other way, just past the swamp. So that was what things looked like coming into opening morning. I wasn't going to hunt the morning because basically this is like open bean field kind of hunt situation. I don't have a, a way to get in there without blowing out deer in the morning. So this was an evening hunt plan. The morning comes along. I look at the wind direction prediction and it's changing Dan and it's changing to North Northeast. So now it's midday and I'm looking at North Northeast. I'm thinking, man, Northeast would have been just off, but you get that like North Northeast in my head. I'm thinking, man, that's probably going to end up being like, you know, some gusts are straight North. Some gusts are East, some gusts are straight North. And if I get that straight North, that's gonna be blowing right across the bean field low spot where I think these deer might feed and right into that swamp where I think Junior's likely bedded and maybe some of these other deer sometimes. And in my head, I'm like, gosh, like I felt so confident in this location. Like this was gonna be the hunt. This is gonna be the setup. But if that winds like that, like I don't know how that could possibly work.
0: Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at eater. but you got to use the promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at TWC.health slash meat eater. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MeatEater for 10% off your purchase. That's Soil dot co use the code me eater did uh
2: did the mark kenyon paralysis by analysis set in at any point
1: (laughs) can you have ever seen um in the in the hangover there's that scene where uh, Zach Galifianakis is like rain manning on the <laughs> craps table. Do you know right. that part? Yep. Yep. Where you're like seeing like all like the different figures and things going in his head. That was me during the day on October 1st. As I'm thinking through like, <laughs> oh God, Season what am I going to do? not
2: started yet. And you're just like racking your brain to try to find the best, the best spot.
1: Yes, exactly. Like I had, I had felt so confident. Like the night before I had like made my decision, like this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the ground. It's going to be a little risky, but I can pull it off. I'm going to be in this place. And now the wind shifts just a little bit. And now I'm having to reconsider. And so it's like two o'clock. It's three o'clock. And I'm like, all right, I got to make, I got to figure this thing out. And what I ended up deciding to do, Dan, is I decided I was going to go to the low spot and I was going to bring everything I needed to hunt on the ground. I was going to bring a little handsaw to cut out some stuff. I was going to bring my ghillie suit, and I was going to bring a whole hell of a lot of milkweed. And I was going to get to that location, and I was going to just start lofting milkweed and hang out there for a little bit and see what the wind was actually doing in this spot. See how it was looking. There's this low spot, like I mentioned, and then there's a hill that comes up to the side of me, like not a big hill, but a, a, a hill in the in the field and i thought if i get just enough easterly push on this north or east excuse me north northeast my wind might hit that hill and funnel along the side of it instead of going into the swamp so i thought maybe i could get away with this but i got to see in person so i brought my stuff to hunt on the ground but i also brought my climbing sticks and my saddle and platform so that if i couldn't make the low spot work i could pivot and pick a new location to hunt from a tree that the wind would work right so I brought in two full sets of gear for two different kinds of hunts and I was going to make an infield decision based on what the wind was doing in that exact location nice so I sneak out there I get to the low spot I start throwing milkweed and it's just it it just was not looking good and I wanted it to work so bad and I was so confident in this plan and And I would stop and I'd throw milkweed and I'd sit and watch and I'd think and I'd rack my brain and then I'd walk 20 yards and I'd check again and I'd throw it and think and i walked another 10 yards and I sat and thought and that and thought. And I ended up just trying to envision like, okay, what scenario would this work in? Okay, so what if the wind is pushing like this? So I, I just, the way the wind was pushing, the southerly portion of this swamp and stuff like it just seems like I'm going to be blowing right to where these deer are probably popping out where they historically have popped out I don't think I could pull that off okay well what if they come from the east what if the bucks are actually bedded to the east what if they come that way well gosh by the time they get into a spot you could actually shoot they're basically going to be downwind of you now too and then I thought okay well what if they come from the north well if they come from the north if I'm hunting in this place I won't be able to see them at all until they're downwind of me again too so I just couldn't envision a scenario where the thing I really wanted to do would work. So at like three four o'clock I decided, you know what? I'm just, I'm, I'm going to have to hunt my plan B location and I'm going to have to sacrifice something because if I were to move further back, the next best option I had is that I had to hope for bucks to be bedded to the north. And that maybe these deer that had been coming out and transitioning through the food plot to the beans, that would be perfect for this wind direction. I thought I could kill one of those deer. And if I want to kill one of those deer, though, I have to get down there by that back food plot where they transition through. That's going to mean sacrificing the swamp, though. Yeah. And so I sat there and I thought to myself, okay, I've got two options. I can pull out of here completely. And just go back to the front of the farm where I, I've been glassing a lot and I've not seen any of the shooter bucks up there. But I could go up there and just sit and maybe get lucky. Like maybe something will come through for the very first time or, you know, maybe I'll be able to observe something. Um, and that'd be the safest thing. I wouldn't blow anything up. It'd be perfectly safe wind. It'd be easy peasy, nothing wrong. I've done that many other years in the past. That was one option. Or the other option is be aggressive, get to the back of this f- back food plot section where they're sometimes transitioning through hope that these bucks are better in the North and sacrifice the swamp, which is where junior had been the most. And that was a tough call. Like I really was unsure. Like basically my number one buck, I'm going to be blowing my wind right into a place where my number one buck has been bedded a lot and basically saying, well, I'm just, I'm not going to get a crack at this deer tonight. Probably if he, if he is bedded there, like it seems like he beds a lot. But I thought in the end, I'm thinking through what usually happens in this area. And what usually happens is you get a night or two where there's this early first sit magic. And if you don't take advantage of that first day or two, they're gone for weeks. Like they're around, but they're nocturnal. And then it might not be till late October till you have another chance. And so my mindset, basically, you know, I decide I'd be happy shooting any one of these three deer. I think There's still an opportunity for that first sip magic, but it's not happening from the South. There's no way I can pull off a hunt for a deer coming off in the South, but I could there's no access.
2: There's no way to get behind them. Right. There's, there's
1: just, there's, there's no, there's no way to get to where these deer are going to be coming out to feed and get in between them there without this wind completely blowing it out. But I could get a crack at these deer if there's deer to the North. So that's the decision I made. I decided to sacrifice the South, sacrifice the swamp in order to have a really good chance still for deer to the North, because I believed that there could be this buck G, there could be this buck, the Y nine that could be up there. And this would set up very well for that. So that's what I did. I moved, this is like, you know, I don't know, 80, 90 yards down to this back section. I had a tree prepped on the edge of this food plot that I had planted there. So I've got the bean field finger to the south of me. I've got this little food plot to the north of me and very good bedding to the north, the swamps to the south of me. I'm blowing right to the swamp. So like a little part of my soul is dying because I'm blowing my wind into the swamp. And I just know a bunch of deer are smelling me. And I'm, I'm willing to make that sacrifice and that risk because I know like I've got a chance for a kill tonight from somewhere else. And I also knew that I could pull out and return in three weeks and I still felt confident I could be back in the game in three weeks, but I'm, I'm making a ruckus right now. And I get up in this tree on the edge of the food plot and I'm, you know, going back and forth in my mind, like, is this, is this stupid? Did you just blow up your whole place for the first night and you're not going to see anything? And then some does start coming out into those beans and they come out from the side that should be safe and they booger. I'm like, Oh, that's weird. Is my wind swirling or something? Like that should not be happening. And then like a half hour later, another doe and two fonts comes out in the beans to the Southeast of me again, should be very safe. And they booger out of there and the night's progressing. I'm like, good Lord. Like I took you're this not, risk.
2: Your, your, uh, um, milkweed isn't like going back and getting sucked back in by, I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes I've noticed that if, if I'm, if I'm sitting in the sun then and i'm maybe in a not necessarily the highest spot but not necessarily the lowest spot the and and, you know as the evening starts to get cooler the predominant wind will blow in one direction but the thermals will suck down into a low spot and then potentially you know get sucked back into the terrain and go back into the timber or something did you feel like any of that was going on
1: So there, there had to be something funky like that going on, but I could never get it to show with the milkweed consistently. But I'm in like this thick fence row with a lot of big trees and a lot of leaves on. And so I think it was a, it was a strong wind night. So the best I could figure is that the wind was blowing through this fence row, through these trees, and it was kind of swirling when it hits this tree line maybe in some way. Mm -hmm. Something was going on. I couldn't put my finger on exactly what, and it wasn't happening all the time, and I couldn't get the milkweed to show me consistently. But something was getting my wind to push. It was supposed to be going northeast, but it seemed to be pushing northwest occasionally too because these does coming to that side of me were blowing and busting out of there. So – we're down to the last like hour and a half of daylight, and I've had this happen a couple times with the does. And in my head, I'm just thinking, "Geez, you really, you really did a great job here tonight. You blew out the whole swamp, and now these other deer are winding you." Um, this is uh, a, a, just a classic Mark Kenyon f up, <laughs> and uh, season's off to a classic good start. Mark, classic yeah. Mark, <laughs> and uh, and I just kept thinking, man, you just you gotta believe. That these bucks are to the north, like you know, they've done it in the past. You know, you've had some pictures of them coming from the north. It's possible, and that's rock solid from the wind. So just as long as a doe doesn't blow right as these bucks pop out, if they do, you know, you still have a chance. You still have a chance, and um, you know, most years you make you make these series of decisions. You take a risk like this, and nine point nine times out of ten, it does not pan out. Right, most of the time, it doesn't. Right most of the time, you know, you take the risk, you screw some stuff up and you live to hunt another day and you learn something from it and you keep trying. Um, last year did a lot of these kinds of things and they didn't pan out. And I just kept saying to myself, man, you keep doing these things, you keep doing most of the stuff, right. You know, every once in a while, the cars will fall in your favor. Every once in a while, that risk you take will pan out. You just gotta let fate Gotta give enough time and then fate will fall the right way. And, um, and so on this particular night, a lot of stuff had gone wrong. A lot of things had changed, but I made a few decisions. I took a couple of risks and tonight was lucky enough that it did pan out in my favor because with an hour before dark, I see a buck pop out from the North, steps out in this food plot, walks right to my little fake scrape tree. And I right away, I see like nice tine length. And I pull up the binos and I look at him like, oh man, he's a nice three-year-old. That's a nice buck. Um, he starts working that scrape and doing his thing and I film him with my phone. I'm watching him. I'm thinking, man, well, there's one, there's usually more at this time of year. There's these bucks are usually still hanging out in groups for a little bit longer here. And as I'm filming that buck, I see another deer step out behind him and come walking towards and throw out the binos, look at him, And right away, you could just see this is like a different kind of animal, like yeah. double the body size, you know, antlers just like clubs compared to the spindly three-year-old and just knew right away. Oh, that's, that's the nine. That's, that's this buck. I was calling G this eight pointer that I'd seen a bunch last year had been passing him last year at the end of the year. Last year, I was like, gosh, he's, you know, after I had a tough season last year, I almost, I, I, I was on the fence about maybe trying to take a crack at him at the end of last year. Um, Cause he was the only other good buck that was still showing with junior last year, but now he's back this year. And he's a big, big bodied, solid nine point buck. And he was one of those three deer that I said, if I saw him, I'm taking a crack. So he pops out, he walks to the mock scrape, but he's behind branches and stuff. I can't get a shot at him. But I'm like, holy crap, this is actually happening. I'm actually seeing one of these shooter bucks, came out to the food plot. I'm very happy and excited in the moment. And then the little buck, the three-year-old turns and starts walking right to me. And this is not what these deer usually do. Usually they transition either, you know, working about, basically they usually work away either side of me. And, you know, all the does that night that had popped out in the food plot had worked through it about 30 yards and crossed the fence row and went into the bean field to the south. Sometimes they do this to the other side of me. But this buck instead comes on a trail, not a trail, like a beeline right to me. And is walking through cover like I've got like a bunch of, Basically, I had two shooting lanes to this food plot, and he chose to come walking through the thick cover right in between those two shooting lanes and is walking right at me. And I'm thinking, my gosh, this buck's going to come right to the base of my tree. He's going to smell something. He's going to wig out and spook out, and I'm never going to get a shot at the big one behind him. And sure enough, I'm holding my bell and watching this happen and thinking to myself, there's just nothing I can do right now. This buck walks right to the bottom of my tree, and something's not quite right and he he doesn't blow but he bounces back to the plot. He takes like two big leaps back to the edge of the plot and stops. Meanwhile, G, the big one, stops right on the edge of the plot and just starts looking around like what's going on? What's going on? And fortunately, they they did they knew the young one knew something was up but didn't really know what it was cuz he went back to feeding. He starts feeding again and the big one just stands there for like 5 minutes. Doesn't move for five. I'm standing there holding my bow. He's standing there just kind of looking around. But again, he's behind all this cover in between my two shooting lanes. I can see him. And I remember thinking like I'm sitting there and I'm watching him forever and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I've got this shooter within range. He's at 20 yards, but I can't shoot him. I remember thinking, like, is there any hole in this cover? Can I find a little opening? Is there somewhere I could squeeze one in there? And then I just thought, dude, you do not. You're not going to do this again. You're not going to force a shot like you did on Tran two years ago. You're not going to rush a shot like you did last year trying to get this other big eight pointer in Iowa that you really wanted. Like, You're not going to make all these mistakes. You're going to wait until it's right. You're going to slow. You're going to follow your process. And if it works, you're going to make it work right. If it's not, you're just not going to. You're not gonna do it. You can't get an arrow back. So I just kept on trying to tell myself to just just wait it out, do it right, wait it out, do it right. And finally he turns and starts slowly feeding back towards the shooting lane. He gets right to like the last set of branches I need him to clear. And he's slowly taking a step, taking a step. I draw back as he's just about to step out from behind the branches, and then he stops again. I'm at full draw. And this is like exactly what happened to me last year on a doe. I got stuck a full draw for like two minutes and got all shaky and ended up hitting that deer a little low. So now I'm thinking about that again. I'm like, gosh, that this can't happen again. Like, should I draw down? Um, can I stay a full draw? And fortunately, as I'm thinking through, like, should I draw down or should I not? He takes one more step. And this is where the next big thing happens, which is, can I accomplish my goal of, of good shooting of like sticking to this new shooting process I have and doing it the right way. And, and basically, um, I had this like set of like, like, uh, words, like phrases that I say to myself every single time I shoot to keep myself in control and to like follow each step of the process. make sure I don't rush and punch, punch the trigger, rush the shot. So as I draw the bow back, as I'm like mid draw, I say, no matter what, I'm going to do this right. I get locked in. And then the next thing I say is I say, address the target. So when I say address the target, that means that pin goes right there behind the shoulder. And the next thing that happens is I say, address the trigger, which means now I can put my finger on the trigger and lock in. And then I say, here we go. And then that's when I can start pulling through. And I will give myself a B on how I did with this shot because I got through step one. I said, no matter what, I'm going to do this right when I got drawn back. And I'm focusing on just staying in the moment, focus, take it slow. When he stepped out from behind the branches, I said to myself, my head said, all right, address the target. I saw that pin go on there behind the shoulder. In the previous world of me, as soon as that pin hits the deer, it's usually gone like The the is on the way right then but i i was able to not do that i got that pin behind the shoulder and i was able to then address the trigger i got my finger on the trigger but then before i said here we go in my mind i was pulling through so i did the right process i pulled through i didn't use my finger at all i pulled through i went through the slow process all the way but i did not say here we go so in my you know i didn't do it perfectly I'm a work in progress still there, but I did pretty good with it. I I made progress. It definitely forced me to slow down more than I had done in the past. And all that led to the arrow getting right behind the shoulder, double lung shot. I watched that buck kick and run out of there like a bat out of hell. And I knew that was a dead buck. I knew I just center punched a a four-and-a-half-year-old Michigan deer after a really tough year last year. Um, And it felt absolutely incredible. And I was really,
2: really, really thrilled. That's awesome, man. Uh, so that, uh, that shot process, right? You, you'd been practicing and working on it. You called it a B, but I, I would look at it more binary than that. I mean, I, I think that what you did is way more than what most people do. And way more, I mean, for me, way more than what I do, you know, I still almost, I don't want to say I live by it. I, I, I slow myself down a little bit, but it's better than grip it and rip it. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I, that that that's a win, dude.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I it was it was improvement. It was yeah. improvement. And so I'm, I'm glad for that. And it was a really good shot. And it was an improvement. And it was a thing that I had not done yet, right? I hadn't shot a deer before with that new process. And so it felt good to felt good to do it. And, and now I'm, I'm going to go on doe patrol and, uh, just keep fine tuning, keep working until I can get all yeah. the way through, you know, 2000% in control. Um, but I've been working really hard at, it. I mean, I, I went and met with this coach in April, spent a day with him. And then since April, I've been doing this, you know, as close to every day as I possibly can. Um, I mean, I've been shooting a ton, just trying to make this like second nature. So, um, to see that come together pretty darn close was,
2: uh, was encouraging, yeah, awesome, awesome. Congratulations, Mark. Uh, so, thank you. The arrow goes through him. Uh, did you know it was a pass through right away? Yeah, knew it was a pass through. How no, far I, was the I, shot I, now? Twenty five yards. Twenty five yards. Okay, pass through. Did you see immediate blood?
1: Uh, you know, I don't know if I saw immediate blood. I remember. I guess what I do. What I remember seeing is when he turned, when he spun to run back the way he came, I remember yeah. seeing something coming out the backside. And I remember wondering in my head, was that the arrow still stuck in there? Or was that blood shooting out the backside? Because um, I, yeah. I could have swore it was a pass-through. Because like, it had to be a pass-through where it hit. But I remember like seeing something shooting out the backside and it must have been blood because it was a pass through right where I hit him. So that must have been blood I was seeing coming out the back. But, um, you know, I waited like a half hour in the tree, made some phone calls, sent some texts, uh, celebrated a little bit, and then got down, checked the arrow, saw that, yes, it was a pass through right where I thought, looked like good blood. And then I backed out and uh, went back to my house and was going to wait for some buddies to come out, but also my family my boys wanted to come along for the track job. So yeah. I was going to wait for them to come home from a, a Halloween campout. out. And, uh, and yeah. So do you want me to make a, I can make the, the quick final, final. Well, uh,
2: here's what I, here's what I, I, I have another question here Okay. Uh, when it comes to that. All right. So when it, so at this point, you still, I mean, you shot this buck, but in the back of your head, Michigan is a, uh, a two-buck state, right? So you have the, the possibility of, I don't know, running into another one of these uh, deer. Did, I know your boys wanted to come out and you wanted to have the, cr- the whole crew come out and, and, and do the recovery. But did any part of you go, hey, if I can get this deer out of here quietly and low, like as low pressure as possible, then I might be able to get right back in here and, and hunt another one of these deer that's still on one of the, on, on the same pattern.
1: Mm, Good question. Um, but I have like a self-imposed one buck rule in this area. Gotcha. So my thought is, you know, you get one, you leave the rest alone. So you've got something fun to hunt next year. So as soon as I shot that deer, the first thing I thought was, man, juniors get a free pass. Yeah. Um. So I'm not gonna shoot one of those other deer the rest of the year. I'm gonna hunt out here for does, and do that. Um. But the bucks will have a really nice little sanctuary. Um. And then next year, you know, hopefully we'll get to uh, see these deer. Hopefully these deer will make it, and we'll get to chase one of them then. But, uh, but no, I wasn't gonna. I wasn't going to worry about that. I wanted to fully celebrate and enjoy and just just have fun. Like I just yeah. leading into the season, I had even though I'm even though I joked about you know going Rain Man style and trying to figure out what to do and yada yada yada, I had way lower levels of stress and worry and analysis by paralysis this year than I've had in a long time. Because I just I I don't want to say I didn't care, but I wasn't. I wasn't like living and dying on whether I was going to kill junior or one of these deer. It's like, man, I'd love to get a crack at one of these deer. I really enjoy this fun, like puzzle chess game that, you know, starts now. And like my buddies were joking, like, God, this looks miserable. Like looking at my spreadsheets and my notes and, you know, trying to think through these different patterns and stuff. But I was like, no, this is like the really fun part for me. I geek out about this. Um, It's just like if I take it too serious and like get upset when things don't work out, that I let it go bad. But this year I was like, you know what? Who cares if I if it doesn't pan out? Like just just get back to having fun with it, having a nice quiet night in the tree stand with like no other. You know, you know, I I enjoy a lot of the stuff with the filming and producing the shows and everything. Like there's it's a really cool thing, and I'm glad I get to do that. But having nights like Saturday night where I've got no other people, no cameras, no talking points I need to cover, no story I need to like capture. I just get to hunt and enjoy what happens. Like that was really, really nice. And um, so that was, that was what was on my
2: mind. I was just enjoying it and like soaking it in. Yeah. That's awesome. And so talk to me uh, a little bit about the recovery, uh, the recovery with the boys, what this deer did after the shot, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest thing that came out of it was, it was a good blood trail and, you know, my family was close enough locally that, um, you know, we could, they could be a part of it. It wasn't so late. It wasn't, you know, a situation where we had to travel a really long ways and the kids were interested like very excited. They both, when they heard I shot a buck, they both really wanted to, uh, track. And my oldest Everett, he's like really, really into it. And so he's already helped me track three does. We did two last year and one the year before. And like He's a pro. Like he can see blood better than I can, so he's actually an asset. <laughs> so I knew, like, if I shot a buck and it worked out with bedtimes and all that, it'd be awesome if he could come. And then my youngest, who's two, for the first time, he was like, he really wanted to come. So because of that, then my wife had to come. So my wife, my two-year-old, and my four-year-old, we uh, we all headed out there. And then my buddy Dustin showed up a little bit later to help. And uh, you know, the blood trail took us through some thick, nasty stuff, but maybe like. 80 90 yards something like that uh you know we found him piled up in the thick brush and and everett my four-year-old he was leading the way the whole time like there's blood there's blood there's blood and so we spotted the buck up in the distance you know and let him discover it on his own and uh you know just getting to see his excitement when we finally came up on it him trying to pick up the antlers and like oh man this is heavy (laughs) um that whole thing was just uh just so so cool to to have everyone there And, um, you know, just, it was, it was just great. It was everything I could have asked for. You know, I kinda, I had a hunch that this year coming into the year, focusing more and just getting back to basics and enjoying myself and enjoying the simple things and community and my local stuff and all that. I kind of had a hunch, like, I bet you this is going to be a good year when I'm just like less stress, less travel, all, all these things. And, uh, and sure enough, you know, made a couple of good decisions, got a little lucky and, um, you kind of need those two things to come together. And they usually come together a couple times a year. And, uh, if you're lucky and this year it, it happened to be here at the beginning and, um, man, it was just great. It feels really, really good to, uh, to get a bow, a bow kill under my
2: belt and, um, you know, onward, onward, onward. So awesome. Uh, first off, congratulations! So uh, I I don't know what it's like to hunt like opener anymore. I I, I used to way back in the day pre kids, but now with all the activities and things, I save all my you know I put all my eggs in the basket for uh, for the time with the uh, you know for the rut the late late October. I am going to be going out this week though, but uh, I'm a little jealous because I I, I definitely want to uh, someday get back into the opening day, even if it's just for the one evening. So, uh, kudos on that. Uh, so you mentioned onward, what does onward look like now? Yeah. So,
1: I mean, a, a, a lot of my October schedule I had assumed was going to be hunting, you know, these deer here in Southern Michigan, um, a lot of, you know, most of that's off the table. So there's a few other spots in Michigan that I can hunt that I will dabble with. Um, throughout the coming weeks, but mostly I'm going to be shooting does cause this general, this pocket that I hunt has got a lot of does. And now that I've got a buck off of it, I can focus on just doing that. And I want to keep working on that shop process. So I think this is a great opportunity to just do some doe hunting, get more and more confident with this new shop process so that I'm, you know, really, really confident with it. And then I got access to a property in Ohio just recently. And so I'm going to start getting down there and I'm going to, I'm going to save it because I'm going to try to, uh, we're doing that one week in November show again this year. Yep. And so I want to save that location for that show. Um, so I'm not going to shoot anything down there in October, but I'm going to go down for some scouting. Like we're going to go down tomorrow And put some cameras up and just walk it for the first time. And then I'll probably show up again one time mid or late October just for like observation sits and more scouting and check cameras and stuff. Um, But I don't have a planned traveling hunt outside of just like some other Michigan stuff. Going up to our deer camp hopefully a couple times. Um, Nothing until Halloween when I'm going to drive to Nebraska and start filming that one week in November. And basically the idea is to hunt Nebraska until I kill something, hopefully. And then once I do, then drive back down to Ohio to finish things off. And then, you know, the rest of the year, the only other travel I have is a Texas hunt. So much less travel this year, but still like some fun stuff. yeah. Um, And hopefully, you know, without as many of those traveling hunts, I'll just have more time to, you know, Take my son out, or go hunt with my dad, or um, just do some of these local things or these family and friend things that I've I've not gotten to enjoy in a while, um, but that are such an important part of like my hunting love. Yeah, absolutely. So that's um that's what I'm looking forward to. Um, and yeah, that's that's what's in store. Less less stress, more fun this year. Less stress, more fun, and you know that's that's like one of the big takeaways for me like out of this opening day hunt and my season so far there's a few things that i think i can learn from this but i I just think that you know coming into the year with that attitude that like that's not why i killed this deer right but it certainly i think set me up in a way that i was um you know in the right headspace to allow this thing to happen right and So I came into the season more flexible with what I was willing to shoot, what I was interested in hunting. And so when I, you know, had my plan A and plan A didn't, you know, wasn't going to work out right. I wasn't dead set on it. I wasn't stuck. I wasn't like, well, if this doesn't work, I'm screwed. So I'm done. No, I could fall back on a plan B and I had a plan B in mind and I had a plan C in mind. And So I think my big lessons or takeaways from this, Dan, are one, like it's so important to be flexible in like your decision-making. And I think, I think the key or something I'm trying to get better is to have like to have well thought through decisions. So like when I'm deciding where I want to hunt or what I want to do, I want to have like a really well thought through plan, but I want it to be lightly held. So well thought through, but lightly held. So I've got a great plan A, and I really had a good thing going. I thought, but when the situation on the ground is different, or when something changes and it's not going to work. You need to be willing to pivot fast. You need to be flexible and and adjust. And maybe an older version of me would have been like so dead set in the plan that I would have said, well, I got to try it anyways. But, you know, being able to realize, okay, this this isn't going to work. We need to adjust. That got me into a position somewhere else where I could still have success. That was one big thing, Dan. A second big thing was just like, this is just another good reminder for me, just like that first sit magic. Yeah. whether it be opening day or the first time into a new place. Like I am a, I am willing to, I've, I've been reminded of this year after year. And this was a really good example. Like it's worth taking a swing when you have that first set opportunity. Yeah. Like it's worth taking a risk. It's worth being aggressive when you have that fresh set, when you have that unpressured deer kind of thing, whether it's opening day or whether it's a place you haven't touched for three weeks and you just know it's golden, um, you know, I used to be a lot more conservative and I never would have done something like that. And that brings me to my third thing, which is like, sometimes you have to sacrifice something to get something. Right. When it comes to deer hunt, like you always have to make a choice. There's going to be something you're going to sacrifice. Sometimes it's going to be a small sacrifice. Like, okay, you know, deer are going to blow. if, If deer come to the east of me, they're going to win me. Uh, or some days it's gotta be a big sacrifice. Like I made a big sacrifice on opening night, where I said basically I'm writing off the swamp, which is one of the big betting areas that I think my number one buck is likely using a lot. And like that was a that was a huge risk. It was a big like sacrifice, and I just knew like all right. But because I was because I had a set of goals that allowed me to have some flexibility, I said all right. I'm I know that the first set can be magic. I have to take a chance on this first set first night opportunity. I have a chance to still get a nice buck that could be better to the North. So I'm going to write off the South, take a big swing because I know there is this home run opportunity to the North. And I think that six, seven years ago, I never would have touched that idea, but I, you know, I've seen enough now to, to, to realize that you, you've you got to give to get Right. So, so those are my big takeaways, I think from this hunt that I think could apply through the whole year, um, in, in different kind of ways. So, um, sometimes that aggressive and flexible approach is, is really the best way to go.
2: Yeah. Well, Hey, your, your season's off to a good start and, uh, that's, uh, I don't know, man. That's uh that's a good thing to have. I have yet to have a season where I just knock one out of the, you know, knock one off the list right away. I usually hit some kind of uh uh drought period where I'm just hunting and hunting and hunting and then and then it comes together. But uh it sounds like you're on a roll already and hopefully the the roll continues through the rest of the season, man. So once again, congratulations.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's a it's a great feeling. I haven't last year I didn't shoot a mature buck. And then the year prior to that, I guess I, I guess two years ago was the last time I shot a, a decent buck on my bow. So it's been a little bit, and uh, it, it felt good to uh, finally see it all come together. So thank you, my friend, for coming on here to pick my brain on it and to celebrate with me a little bit. Hell and yeah. um, I'm, I'm ready to have you on here soon to tell your story. So get out there, and let's uh, let's have another one of these. Absolutely. And that is a wrap. Thank you for listening Thanks for going on this journey with me, Uh, as I've already said. It was a great kickoff to the season, and I'm excited for how the rest of it goes. Now, I didn't get to do this at the beginning, so bear with me here. i got to plug a few things. Number one, have you seen Deer Country yet? That's my new show. It's over on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. At this point, five of the episodes, five of the six episodes are out. So please head on over to the YouTube channel. Check them out. Subscribe to the channel, like those videos, uh, leave a comment, share some feedback. would love to hear what you think. It was an interesting, challenging, uh, growth-inducing hunting season for me last year, but I'm really proud of the show we put together and the stories we told along the way. Made all those ups and downs worth it, I hope. So, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Meteor Season 11 is coming out October 26th and that season and the like, four seasons prior are being made available on the meat eater website. So that's the meat And finally, next week is a great big white tail week for meat eater. So uh, I'm going to leave it at that, but we've got some great deals, some good news, some new stuff all dropping next week. So stay tuned, check out this podcast, check out Rough refresh radio, check out Tony's foundations episode there'll be a new episode of deer country. There's going to be all sorts of articles over on the Wired Hunt website. We are pumping out the deer shit for you. Excuse my French. If you're underage, earmuffs. Otherwise, we love deer. It's deer season. It's the greatest time of year. I'm loving it. I hope you're loving it. And until next time, my friends, my family, stay wired to hunt.
0: It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill.